You're listening to All Systems Go with Rory McCallion, the podcast on all things IoT, industrial data, and digital transformation. Brought to you by MarketScale. Hello, and welcome to this, the very first edition of All Systems Go, which is a podcast devoted to the state of international industrial Internet of Things. My name is Rory McCallion, and I'm delighted to welcome you today. Now, I think that there's a great hot topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is unmanned aerial vehicles. Such a lot has happened over the last 15 months, particularly with COVID-19, and it has affected the logistics and the supply chain. People have been looking at ways of delivering uh, products, online shopping, much more effectively, all the way up and down the value chain, not just the last mile or whatever. Uh, And there's no better person to talk about that than my guest today, who's Tony Duthie. Now, Tony has been in the aerospace industry for over 40 years. He was a vice president of Augusta Westland in the United States for about 10 years before returning to his home in southwest England and working for Leonardo Helicopters in Yeovil and in London. He really knows what he's talking about. He's very keen on unmanned aerial systems. And there's not much that he doesn't know about it, as you're going to be finding out. Um, And we're looking at uh, across the board from all applications, not just logistics and supply chain, but agriculture, security, fisheries, disaster relief, hazardous situations, a whole gamut of things that uh, drones and UAVs and UASs are suitable for. And we'll also be looking at uh, what handicaps or technologies might be actually hindering the development of UAVs and UASs and their use, or what the limitations are, what we can expect over the next five years and maybe even looking to 10 years ahead. Settle down and enjoy. Feel free to take notes, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much for your attention. We talked about where the, um, where the differentiation is, what the, who the different users are, government, military, very strong overlap there, and in civilian areas. Uh, we have um, looked at using it for the last mile for deliveries for Amazon and whatever. And that's not really a practical proposition because of cost, except, or, uh, and also the logistics, the actual uh, urban infrastructure, the urban environment, although it may work well work in uh, rural areas such as South Wiltshire or, uh, or, or the Australian outback, the Australian outback. Especially, or, or in or in or in planned urban areas, and I think it, the, the the planned urban area, the city of the future, um, so long as it's designed for that, will be okay. Okay, all right. But uh, yeah, the, the the dream that we would be able to use it routinely is not really on for a number of reasons. Well, you did mention that uh, urgent deliveries, whether it's B two B or whether it's health, for example, blood or transplant tissue, something like that, could be uh, an option for. Uh, for, for drones, for, for guided aerial vehicles rather than uh, autonomous. Um, the autonomous area is one that uh, really isn't very well developed and is not likely to be developed for reasons that you've made pretty clear in talking about the uh, software. Now, um, if we can look at agriculture, uh, how can how can these machines be used to help manage ab- agriculture in a sustainable way? Uh, whether it's looking after, looking out for uh, problems in, in crops, vandalism, uh, poaching in some parts of uh, Africa, for example. Um, is that are, are those realistic uses, and are they being used now? The short answer is yes, they are um, in various parts of the world. Um, I mean, if you look at the the, uh, the the macro problem relating to 
world population and population growth and um, the amount of land available for agriculture. Uh, demand is going up. Um, the availability of land is is sometimes you know going down in terms of uh, urban sprawl, and therefore productivity has to increase. You either do that by getting more stuff out of the land that you're already using, mm. um, or indeed bringing you know currently non-productive land into productive status. Um, so just running across a, a, a couple of areas where you know UAVs could certainly uh, help and. It's all about sensor capability. So, you know, the, the, the UAVs themselves actually become irrelevant uh, in terms of the type of UAV, but what sensors can they carry um, that will enable people to then look at, you know, the health of the soil? Um, um, you know, is there been erosion uh, in certain areas either caused by flash flooding um, or, um, um, you know, uh, natural, natural uh, causes? Um, you know, you then move into things like crop health and crop health is very much determined by the ability for, for crops to obviously, you know, uh, photosynthesize, you know, sunlight into, um, you know, sugars and all those things to make them grow. Um, and so uh, a great uh, measurement of, of crop health is actually is color and reflectivity yeah. and absorption of, uh, of, uh, of heat and those things that go with it. So, uh, and that also then takes you into um, the ability to detect to uh, detect disease uh, mm. on crops and you know, and and other things such as um, uh, pests because you know clearly if you've got um, in in certain parts of the world locusts have, have been a, a major a problem but also even in more temperate climates you know you can get uh, pests that also uh, can 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 literally you know knock out significant percentage points of uh, of productive yield. So that then takes you to a conversation that says, okay, once I've I've identified I've got a problem, how do I fix it? Um, and you know, typically fixing it at the moment involves you know tractors going on fields. Now that's okay if you've got vehicle accessible fields. Uh, what happens if you're in a in a plantation um, in the, the tropics or you're in terraced fields whereby you're growing rice and those sorts of things? And it's difficult to get machinery into those those areas. Mm. Then the, the logical conclusion for that is, well, actually, I can use a uh, I can use a drone right. to either get in there with a sensor, or I could actually then uh, apply a fertilizer, or I could apply a a, um, a, a controlling substance uh, to, uh, to to limit the uh, the spread of disease or whatever. Now, at the moment, because of regulation around a number of countries, in fact, many countries around the world. The ability to spray crops with fertilizers and pesticides has been outlawed. So you would have to get a change in regulation to allow that to happen. And certainly the only way you'll do that will be to demonstrate that you'll be uh, applying fertilizers and pesticides in a precision manner mm. that the pesticide goes onto the plant and doesn't go into the watercourse with uh, subsequent pollution problems. Okay, so it, so that's to do with the actual physical distribution. It's not necessarily to do with the makeup of the of the pesticide. Um, you know, something like neonicotinoids, for example, are essentially banned in Europe, not just the EU, but here as well, uh, except for in the UK as well, except for temporary um, yeah. allowances. Yeah. Uh, there's, 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 there's concern about inadvertent um, uh, deposition into watercourses and everything else simply caused by 
the fact that aircraft are seen to be very different beasts to uh, precision tractors. Right. Yeah, of course they are. You know, the higher you get, the, the more you're going to get air, air dispersal. But of course, yeah. not being able to monitor disease, we both have ancestral connections to Ireland. And uh, if, they've, if they've had aerial drones 150 years ago, maybe the blight wouldn't have been as bad in the, in the family. True, true. Okay, but so that, that would be useful, as you say, with um, locusts. And it, it also occurred to me when you were talking that uh, disaster areas of disaster, uh, they could be very useful as well in identifying where um, emergency aid is needed most, so triaging. Yeah, that is, that is one of the areas that, um, you know, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, uh, the ability to get drones over the uh, the area as quickly as possible. Um, and and it may be areas that, um, you know, it, it's, it's impractical to get land vehicles or even manned uh, air vehicles uh, in there. So it could be things like volcanic eruptions, uh, very topical in, in Central Africa at the moment, whereby you can actually go in and assess, um, you know, what, what geographic damage has been done um, the plight of um, you know survivors. You can then identify where the aid is is needed at most priority, and then you can either call in then the uh, the man platforms to uh, to bring in aid, or indeed uh, you could bring in uh, drones that could then drop the aid and deliver the aid there and then mm. uh, before the manned asset turns up. Right. Okay. So it brings an entire entirely different dimension to international rescue. Um, Oh, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Now, who are the major players in um, in UAVs uh, from from the military side and from the civilian side? Well, from the military side, you know, there's there's a whole raft of players um, out there. I mean, um, if you were to look at the the two countries who've invested most in UAS technology, it is the United States and Israel. Uh, and the U.S. obviously, you know, well funded by the DOD um, and they've got a, a very uh, good industrial base. Uh, you've got everybody from the likes of General Atomics through to Northrop Grumman, through to, um, you know, Textron and um, you know, Aeroson, who are very big players in the, uh, the military UAV market. They're all prime systems integrators. Uh, they're well funded by the DOD. And, uh, and 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 so on. And then you have Israel, which, you know, because of its unique security situation, uh, has invested heavily in the, in UAV technologies uh, and, has, and has exported them around the world to places in, including the UK, of course. Mm. If you then look at the, um, uh, and that's the majority fixed wing, you then look at uh, rotary wing, then there's there's probably more players around in the rotary wing environment. On a, on a more balanced uh, field across around the world. In Europe, you've got Leonardo um, with its small hero UAV, 150 kilos. Uh, you've got um, Camcopter or Shebel with Camcopter, a similar sized aircraft. You've got um, UMS Skeldar uh, and, and others you know, in, in that marketplace. You've also got the, the rotary platforms also investing in what's called optionally piloted helicopters, whereby you know, you can uh, uh, take a manned helicopter and put a, uh, an unmanned air systems flying package onto it. So, um, you know, all, all the big players have done that. Um, you know, Leonardo, uh, Airbus, Sikorsky, uh, Bell. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, uh, the the larger VTOL um, uh, platforms are, are, are well, well established. And, of course, Northrop Grumman 
as the fire scouting service for the US Navy. Uh, you then moved to the commercial side, mm. and because of the nature of the commercial side, and as I said, the prosumer and the leisure market is dominant, then the, the dominant player in this is a company called DJI, and they're Chinese. Right. Um, and and they, they, they have a significant market share. Um, they are you know, literally producing thousands, tens of thousands of these units per year. Um, they're working very closely with the, um, uh, the regulators around the world to ensure that um, they, may, they maintain market dominance uh, and the like. Right. And, but as you see, the, the larger applications emerging in the commercial side, as we said, in terms of the, um, you know, the other market segments, then you're seeing other entrants coming into play. And at the moment, the majority of those players are focusing in on cargo and logistics uh, for middle mile, as it's called, whereby you're moving from, you know, established distribution depot to distribution depot, uh, or you're you're doing a hub and spoke that you could be tying in with, say, uh, a FedEx um, um, intercontinental uh, cargo aircraft or regional cargo aircraft coming into one of its hubs. Uh, and then uh, you would then be moving the drones into a uh, uh, to provide the middle mile delivery. So you'd be taking, you know, the um, uh, the 20 foot ISO container trucks off the road. Okay. But again, it's going to be all driven by um, value add mm. because you're still going to get a situation whereby um, if it's literally next day uh, delivery and it's high value add, then people will use drones. If it's not next day, they'll use a truck. Right. Okay. At the smaller end, uh, I mean, there's, there's um, drones being sold through toy shops. Yes. Uh, so yeah. the, the barriers to entry at the smaller end are not very high, I would venture. Um, no. it, it's then, it then becomes a simple question of commodity competition. If you can make it at a price that people are prepared to pay, at the, at the standard that people are prepared to, to expect, uh, then you can actually get in quite easily. You can even take on or build your own niche within the area that's currently dominated by the Chinese company. But once you get to the larger thing, I mean, if you're talking about a 20-foot ICU container, that's a heavy piece of kit. Um, you know, you're getting there. That's a serious a serious system. It's involving uh, a lot of serious electronics or uh, engines or robotics, whatever it may be. Uh, and the, the barriers are higher there. So um, is it likely to continue in that area to be between the Americans and Israelis and the Chinese? I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, as the as you get larger, then, as I mentioned earlier, you're moving to a, a another level of regulatory oversight. Yeah. Um, so although you say it's a, a low barrier to entry that, uh, you know, um, someone could could pick up a, um, um, a DJI Phantom and start using it for commercial gain, they will not be able to. Um, if you want to use these things for commercial gain, you will be regulated. Now, clearly, the the regulations um, start with a very light touch for you know, own use. So own use would be for, say, a farmer using a drone for own use on his or her land. Um, own use would be a, an estate agent using a drone to take photographs of, um, of, of a property that's going to go on the market for sale. Right. As soon as you move from own use into providing a service for others, then again, you know, clearly the risk has gone up. The type of drone you're probably going to be using has probably become more sophisticated. And so the regulatory oversight 
and the, um, the, the, the requirements for training for operators, for maintainers, um, for the, you know, the, the, the engineering compliance of the drone itself uh, to meet various standards will all come into play. Mm. And ultimately, if you then end up thinking about operating a drone, um, say it, you know, that weighs around about a ton, then guess what? You'll be uh, right into the same level of certification, qualification, uh, training, maintainability as your current MAN platforms. Okay, so and is that the, is that the case all over the world? It's not just in the UK. Yes. It's everywhere. No, it's, right. it's being driven by ICAO, the FAA, the CAA, and the ASA. Okay, and that, that's fair enough because we did see a couple of years ago. Um, with the with whoever it was that was messing about around Gatwick, that um, uh, even a small drone can can disrupt uh, commercial uh, commercial flight very very severely because uh, yeah. they, they 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 were flying into the flight path here, uh, around Gatwick, and I think they were doing it on purpose. I think somebody from uh, one of the, the um, environmental groups claimed that they were doing it. Uh, but yes, it can be very disruptive, and that then brings in you can't just go into a toy shop, buy yourself a little drone and wander off. You may have to register it uh, as, yes. as are we at that stage. Yeah, Depend, depending on the size of drone, um, registration is going to be required. Mm. Um, and you will have to go on to fill in an online training course that the CAA operate. So, um, you know, I, I would say that the UK CAA has been very forward leaning right. in terms of trying to facilitate uh, the operations of drones. They are certainly not trying to inhibit uh, but clearly, um, there is there is a, a responsibility of all users to operate drones in a safe manner. Uh, and of course, there has to be um, a duty of care from the government uh, to basically say that it's protecting its citizens. So hence, you do require regulation. Right. OK, that's yeah, that's fair. Enough. And the other thing that we t that we uh, touched on was um, uh, operators versus pilots versus uh, unmanned automatic artificial intelligence and you did say that artificial intelligence were just not there yet and it's unlikely to, to arrive where we've got fully automated drones for quite some time but uh, the level of operator competence that is required as the things get bigger is I suppose in the same way as a pilot's license that as you go from single engine to dual engine to multi-engine jet the level of competence, the level of training gets higher and higher. It will uh, increase and go higher and higher. And of course, it's not just uh, to do with the the complexity of the uh, the platform that the individual is flying. And 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 let's not you know uh, forget that the whole reason for unmanned air vehicles is to reduce the reliance on 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 manpower. Mm. So certainly, the, um, the the machines themselves will have high levels of uh, onboard diagnostics and prognostics um, um, to diagnose impending faults uh, and rectify those faults um, so that um, you know the availability uh, of these things is 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 first rate and of course you know that we're all trying to get them to to go further longer with greater endurance mm. you know far beyond the hours of, of, of man uh, platforms so mm. that requires step change in in reliability maintainability availability mm. and of course that then flows into direct operating cost because the other driver on this lot is to reduce the cost of operations so mm. the the platforms themselves will have a lot more smart technologies on board uh, making sure that they they continue to operate 
even if they have got uh, individual faults. Right. The, the level of competence of the operator really will then come down to where is that platform being flown and in what, what um, airspace is it being flown? Mm. So if you are flying in controlled airspace and you have to be flying a very large unmanned air vehicle, then there will be an expectation from the uh, the man, the pilots in manned aircraft that the individual who is controlling that UAV that is in a block of airspace um, has a level of competence that they are comfortable with. Yeah. And, um, and and that really is where I think we a part of the, the debate is really going to you know come to the fore in you know the next two or three years. So where do you see the market being? Uh, where do you see the activity and the market being in five years? I would think that if you look at the the military market, there will be um, the, the the continuing move towards augmenting manned platforms with with unmanned platforms. And you will also see the emergence of um, optionally piloted platforms whereby, you know, although the aircraft is designed to be flown uh, by a pilot, if the environment that the operation is called for does not require a pilot or it may be too dangerous for a pilot, mm-hmm. uh, then in fact the aircraft can be flown unmanned. So mm-hmm. you'll, you, you have an optionally piloted um, um, mix as well. And that will be both on fixed wing and also rotary wing. Right. Um, so the military will will continue to to continue down the path in that direction. However, due to military acquisition and procurement um, cycles, it will take a reasonably long time uh, to do that. So you know the next generation of aircraft, you know that th- it typically takes ten years to bring a a civil aircraft to market military aircraft can take between 15 and 20. Mm-hmm. So the next generation of American aircraft are due to enter service in the late 19, late 2020s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of those will have, uh, will have those sorts of capabilities. So certainly within the next, um, you know, five to 10 years, you'll, you'll see that in the military side, mm-hmm. the, the civil marketplace is moving much, much faster. Um, and part of this is being driven by what's called the, the urban air mobility, uh, initiatives and the advanced air mobility initiatives that an awful lot of the uh, the vertical takeoff and landing um, uh, companies are working towards and these are the these they're notionally being targeted or, or, or branded as the the small four to six seat air taxis um, yeah. that will revolutionize you know air mobility around cities uh, replace the black cab those sorts of things however they themselves will have difficulties in um, in infrastructure, and, and and unless you've got planning already underway in terms of finding uh, infrastructure to take you know, urban air mobility or advanced air mobility platforms, you know they're going to have a, a similar challenge um, as as the unmanned systems will be. But a number of those urban air mobility platforms are being designed as optionally piloted platforms from the very beginning, yeah. and their intention is that they will move from piloting uh, or piloted um platforms with with fair paying passengers at some point to unmanned so very much like as you get on the dlr uh, you may have a driver on the train you sometimes don't have a driver on the train Um, americans and everybody else's docklands light railway in london yeah so um so if you um you know so that is is the vision in terms of having optionally piloted or unmanned or shall we say remotely remotely piloted uh, mm-hmm. urban mobility platforms. And 
although you've got a number of um, you know the large players indicating that they are moving down the road of getting these platforms certified in the the 2023-2024 timeframe, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know my hat off to them uh, for doing that in in double quick time. Um, I think the challenge will then be as they move into uh, the route proving and the commercial applications and finding the right applications where they can start making money, mm-hmm. uh, that will be the acid test for uh, a number of those platforms. So certainly you'll see larger platforms and some of these may be put into the cargo logistics um, arena first um, because, again, um, you know, from a, a risk perspective, it's far easier to move cargo and logistics around remotely piloted than it is to move humans around unpiloted. And so um, the the typical roadmap, I think, will be for the larger unmanned systems, it's going to be cargo logistics um, potentially used as route proving, prove the technology, build up the the confidence, all those things that go with it. In parallel, you'll have piloted urban mobility platforms. And at a certain point in time, they will coalesce and they'll co-join and you may actually then find that um, yeah, you could have uh, you know um, you know four four guys and girls in the back, um, and uh, it's controlled by a, a ground operator. But I don't see that happening probably until um, you know the end of, end of this decade at the absolute earliest. You know, as far as cargo is concerned, you know parcels don't panic; uh, they don't get upset if they if they're uh, bashed around a bit by turbulence or whatever. Whereas human beings are more likely to get excited about it, especially if there's nobody sitting up the front. Uh, Absolutely. Nobody that they can have confidence in. Okay, well, that's that, That's great, Tony. That's that's really good. Um, and what is Adept Aviation Services doing? Because um, I've, I've done a little introduction and I've mentioned that you were with um, Augusta Westland in the United States and with uh, Leonardo in this country, but now Adept Aviation Solutions. What is, what is that? I left Leonardo after... 40 years um, working for what was Westland and then um, moved into uh, to Leonardo. After 40 years, I, I departed and I wanted to maintain my involvement in uh, the, uh, the, the VTOL community and the unmanned community um, as I have done for all of my life. And so um, the, um, the view was, well, let's, let's set up uh, Adept Aviation Solutions um, which allows me to bring my experience and expertise, um, as I've said, of course, you know, manned, optionally manned and unmanned, uh, as well as the emerging technology and capability trends to the marketplace to help, you know, those companies perhaps less familiar with the uh, the technologies and how they can be used, um, how they can bring that into their their strategic uh, thinking, uh, and uh, and how they can um, then utilize and maximize the the benefits of of this. Uh, very exciting and emerging uh, technology. Well, yeah, things are moving at pace, and uh, yeah, it looks like we're going to be have we're going to have markedly different skies or populated populated skies in the not too distant future. Tony, thank you very much indeed for your time. You've been very generous with it and very patient, and I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, speak to you again soon. I hope. Thank you. Okay. Many thanks indeed. Take care.